Welcome to the Self-Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at Self-Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, friends. How are you doing today? My name is Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting, if you're watching online, it's great to have you here. I don't know what has happened to this beautiful state that I moved to, uh, but this weather has become ridiculous. My English blood is boiling with inside of me. Uh, and, and I would love just, you can come to me, find me after the service. If you have a house that faces west, like what do you do? Uh, to keep it cool, because we sat there last night, and, and I'm a little bit of a stickler for turning the air conditioning on. I'm like, hey, you can open a window. So we opened some windows, and it just got hotter and hotter and hotter. And so finally, when it got to about 87 degrees in the house, I said, fine, we can turn the air conditioning on. And it did nothing whatsoever. It just stayed the same. So apparently there's some trick to living here that you guys are all keeping to yourselves. I would love to know what it is. Um, just bring me in. I, I need to be included into this. Um, so come grab me after the service. We're in a series called Build a Bigger Table. We're asking questions about hospitality. We're asking questions about what it is to have people within our homes to build community, recognizing that the early church started this way. It started with people who were willing to open their homes to almost anyone. anyone. And we've been following Jesus through this book, Luke. If you're new to church, if you're new to the Bible, Luke is a biography of Jesus' life. It's one of four of them. Each of them have slightly different nuances. And Luke is fascinating. We're going to jump in with this story uh, and then we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more. So we're just going to open the text and see what God has for us. We'll read it together and we'll pray. If you would like to turn to it in a paper Bible or on your phone or on an iPad, then we will be in Luke chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. Let's pray together, friends. Uh, God, I pray that you would speak to us. Would you take this passage that uh, is in different ways, uh, familiar, but maybe with a hidden challenge lurking under it? Would you use it as you do so often to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable? Would you use it to help us more, walk more fully in the way of your son Jesus and with his heart? And we ask this in his name. Amen. Okay, so on the surface, maybe some of you are familiar with this story. And I would say, for years, this is my general understanding of the story that we're talking about now. I would have said that I would generally understand this story in this way. This story is about the value of contemplation versus activity. It's about the value of contemplation versus activity. We're told that Jesus says, Mary, well done. You sat, you rested, you spent time with me, Martha, too busy, too much service going on. You need to take a break from things. 
Maybe you can quickly identify whether you have a Martha or a Mary type of personality. You might say, yeah, I like to keep going. Uh, you might say, I like to sit and to rest. I had a, a professor at seminary, a New Testament professor who moved from India, very active sort of guy. And one time he looked at me and he said, Alex, he said, my wife does the praying in our house. I have to be doing things. I can't just sit around doing quiet times and things like that. And maybe you find that difficult. Maybe the idea of, in modern language, sitting at Jesus' feet and learning from him, you would say, that, that is a challenge for me. I find it hard to build that rhythm. Maybe you find it very easy. Maybe service comes very easy to you. You like to be practically doing things to help people. And for many years, we might have taken this story, this what's called a pericope, and said, this is what is happening here. Jesus is saying, no, you as a people, you need to spend more time with me in relationship and less time doing things in the world around us, which, again, is a, is a great lesson. If you find it hard to find a rhythm of spending time with Jesus, spending time reflecting, contemplating, I would say do that. That would be a wonderful change in your life. If you need learn nothing else from today, take that away. Find a way to make that work for you. Maybe you're a morning person and you love to get up early in the morning, which apparently is everybody in America because I keep getting breakfast requests for six o'clock in the morning. Um, Tom Walker, <laughs> hang your head in shame. And, and, and to me, breakfast is like an eight to 10 sort of thing with the emphasis on 10. Um, I don't like to be up that early. Uh, so maybe you love to get up early and, and that's your rhythm. Maybe you love to stay up late and you can contemplate those times, but find a rhythm and spend time asking God that you might know his presence. If you're not sure that he's there, ask him to make himself known to you. That is a great thing to take away. But I would ask this question, is that what this passage is about? Yes, it's an outworking that we could take, but I would suggest it's not on the surface what is central to this passage. This passage, in its centrality, is about hospitality. This passage is about hospitality. Now, we already know from just what we've learned so far that Luke has Jesus very interested in the act of of eating, and that we may well say amen to. That's a wonderful thing to see Jesus doing. You could even push this argument. In Luke, Jesus is always going to a meal, at a meal, or leaving a meal. He is constantly around people, and he is constantly eating with them. He is constantly eating with people that it's unexpected for him to be eating with. He sits and eats with tax, tax collectors and sinners. In Luke chapter 7, we're told, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus was always around a table. And he pulled in, as we've learned already over the last few weeks, pulled in people that wouldn't usually get to sit at tables with religious leaders. There was something about this activity of sitting eating that in first century language, it was like an endorsement of somebody. It said, you're okay. You're, you're welcome in common, good society. And Jesus sat with people to whom that was probably never said. And then more specifically in this sort of area that we're in now, Luke chapter 10, this is how the whole chapter starts off. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others. Remember, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about he sent out 12 disciples and they started to do the things that Jesus was doing. Now he expands it and he takes 72 of them and says, go into all the villages that we're about to go to. You're going to start the ball rolling for me. To every place, every town where he was about to go. And then this is his, his advice to them. When you enter a house, 
First say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move about from house to house. Jesus says to them, this is what I hope happens to you. Go out into all these towns and find someone who's willing to let you stay. And then almost take advantage of them. Allow that person to keep feeding you. You are part of what God is doing in the world. You are, you are worth the hire, worth the care. He tells them not to spread out the, the opportunity to give hospitality. No, stay with the person who shows themselves to be willing and keep eating it, keep drinking what they give you, keep staying with that person, keep building that relationship maybe. There is this sending out that Jesus has for his 72 followers. He says, go and experience hospitality. Go and experience good and healthy hospitality. And then in between this and the passage we're about to read, there's the parish, passage, the famous story about the Good Samaritan, again, about hospitality. The Samaritan, the, the man is walking from Jericho to Jerusalem, and only the Samaritan will care for him, will tend to him, will provide for his needs. And that's when we come to this story right after that famous parable. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. So we read a story about 72 disciples who were on their way. People opened their door to them. We read a passage about a man who is on his way, who is abused by someone, who is robbed, beaten up, and someone cares for him. And then we come to a story where Jesus and his followers themselves, they are on their way together. And I love the way that the, the, follower, the disciples, they kind of just disappear from this story. It starts off, it's Jesus and his disciples, and then it's him. There's, there's just him and Martha and Mary. They kind of just disappear from view and everything becomes centrally located around how they offer hospitality to Jesus himself. And yet the story is about hospitality in general. It's about how Jesus would love hospitality to be shown to his followers and to him himself. This story at its heart is about hospitality and about how you treat someone. So I'd love to start us with a question just to get you thinking about the story we're about to read. Have you ever fallen out with somebody while hosting a social gathering? Specifically, if you're married or you share a house with somebody, you're in a house share situation, have you done some co-hosting and had an argument pre-people turning up or even during the time that people were there and it's just been awkward? You have this sense of, we're going to get into this afterwards. You and I are going to sort some things out. We'll keep smiling because there's people in the house, there's people present. We've got to show sort of like good social etiquette. But inside, you are, you are boiling with rage at the other person. The, the writer, the speaker, author, Max Lucado, tells a story about early in his marriage, inviting a very significant professor to stay with them because he was in town. And as the man was coming over, he said, my wife gave me some cues. She gave me a verbal cue that said, we need to tidy the house. This guy's coming to stay. And then she gave me a physical cue when she got down on her knees and started scrubbing toilet bowls and cleaning floors. And he said, I was never one to take the simple tasks. Uh, those things seem too mundane. So I decided to do something special, something that my wife would have value in. So during the afternoon, as we were expecting this guy to arrive, I grabbed the box of photos from our wedding and began to cut the photos up to make a collage of our wedding day that we could display on the wall. And that would be this delightful token of love for my wife. 
There's probably some poor guy that's sort of sat here thinking, what did he do wrong? Was that, a, was that a problem? Was that a misstep? He didn't do anything practical to prepare. He just simply said, oh, I'll do something ridiculous. Maybe this picture for some of you triggers some kind of trauma of some kind. Uh, there is this idea that sometimes when we're hosting people, one person does all of the work and the other person sits around playing games on their phone, relaxing on the sofa or is nowhere to be seen. And it can be frustrating, disheartening, all of those different things. And sometimes people come over and lurking under the surface is, I feel like I'm alone in this. I feel like I'm not getting all the support I need. And sometimes when they're gone, it all explodes everywhere. This is somewhat what is going on in this story here, and we're going to try and look at this story from both their perspectives. But as a bit of an introduction, let's go back to the start. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened a house to him. She had a sister called Mary. So these characters come in and out of different of the biographies of Jesus' life in different ways. We'll see uh, that they come into John's gospel. This is John chapter 12. Their brother Lazarus is mentioned here. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in his honor. Martha served while Lazarus was there reclining at the table with him. In this version, we read, Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. What we see in this family is these are a family that are deeply committed to Jesus. Both Mary and Martha make some incredible statements, whether they're verbal or physical, that reflect that they know something is happening in Jesus that is significant. Martha will say, Jesus, you are the resurrection and the life. She speaks about Jesus as doing something significant in the world. Mary will take perfume and pour it over his feet to anoint him for his death. They are both deeply committed, deeply immersed in what Jesus is doing. And yet their approach to it, as we'll see, is incredibly different. And maybe, controversially, Jesus is going to come down very much on one side of the argument, in a way that for some of us, depending on our personality, it might cause us a little bit of tension. We might feel some unfairness in the story. So let's start off with Martha's story. Imagine for yourself that you live in a small town, and hosting in this culture is very important, hospitality is important, and then you have this incredible opportunity. You have invited Jesus of Nazareth to come and eat with you. This is a significant social moment. Everybody is talking about Jesus. He's begun to travel around. His teaching is unlike anything anybody has heard before. His miracles are spectacular. People are starting to talk about him as the savior of Israel. It is an incredible moment, and you have invited him in and begin to prepare a feast to welcome him, to show him just how valuable he is. And then in the midst of all of that preparation, the one person that you thought you could rely on to be supportive, to help you in this journey, suddenly is missing in action. The one person that you thought would participate, the one person that you thought would be on your side, suddenly you see us sitting just listening to what Jesus is saying. Your sister seems like she's engaged in an act of sabotage. This social moment, this, this meal should be talked about all over town. It should be this moment of, of joy, this moment of celebration. And now everything is falling apart because you, you're doing this single-handed. 
Sure, you've got the servants to help. You're sending them out on errands to grab oil to help with the cooking. But, but the, the whole of the weight of it now is falling on you. And you expected this one person who would stand up for you, who would be supportive, to be there for you in this time. And, and she's gone. She's missing. And, and even worse, she, she seems that she's acting against you. She's sabotaging the whole of the dinner. We're told that Martha opened her home to Jesus. This is this language piece that's significant. It puts her in a place that is usually occupied by a man. It's operating as a patron. It's this word, this Greek word uh, called hupodekomi, which is this idea of taking someone under your personal care. It has this position of sort of support, sustaining. She's taken Jesus in and she's giving him this place of refuge. He could have offered this to anybody. This this is a privilege. This is an incredible social status thing that's happening here. And we know from Martha's story that she's deeply passionate about Jesus and his mission, and yet this social piece can't be missed. This is hugely significant. And in the midst of this, she is distracted by all of the preparations. She has so much to do, and her plea to Jesus is, Jesus, come down on my side Tell Mary that she has a role to play here as well. I can't carry this burden alone. When we read the story from Martha's perspective, it seems totally fair. Why should she have to do everything? Why should she carry the burden? Isn't service something that Jesus values? Isn't this an important role to play? And yet Mary is just sitting there, just listening. We expect her maybe to, as she makes this plea for Jesus to to stand up for her. And yet, let's think about the story and twist it from Mary's perspective. Jesus has come to town. You have never heard anybody who teaches like this. And one thing that stands out about Jesus is this. Yes, the miracles are important. Yes, the, the teaching is incredible. But what is different about Jesus is he seems on the side of those who find themselves on the margins, who find themselves discluded from what God has been doing. And here's the truth. As a woman in the first century, you are discluded from what God is doing. You've watched for years as these rabbis have wandered around gathering followers. And there's one thing that they have in common. Every single one of them is male. And you just wonder, what would it look like? What would it be like not to serve, but to sit and to listen? What would it feel like to be a disciple, to be invited into Jesus' teaching, into his conversation? And so you sit on the floor with the men and you begin to listen. And just in that moment of being invited into that place, the one person that you thought would be supportive, the one person that you would think would be on your side is standing up, pointing you out and saying, you, you don't belong there, Mary. You need to get on with serving. You need to get back to the kitchen. You don't belong here. We're told that Mary sits at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. This language piece is distinct. It is this idea of becoming a disciple. In this moment, Mary is included with the followers of Jesus. She is there learning. She is there taking a place that no woman was ever invited into. Something very significant is happening, and her sister is the one that is pointing her out, saying, you don't belong there, Mary. I wanted to give you a picture of what this might look like in modern times, and and this was the example that came to mind. This is Rosa Parks in her famous bus protest. She sat in a seat where black women were told that they weren't allowed to sit. People told her to move to the back of the bus, and she said, no, I'm staying here. 
Imagine in that moment, in that moment of protest, if another black woman had come to her and said, Rosa, this seat isn't for you. You need to come back with me. Let's go back to the back of the bus. This is where you belong. Come sit back here. This isn't your place. In the first century context of Jewish life, this is exactly what's going on here. Mary is taking a place as a disciple, and another woman is coming alongside her and saying, Mary, you don't belong here. You can't sit at Jesus' feet. You can't learn from him directly. You go back to the kitchen. You get to serve. You get to play a role, but it's, it's not this role. Both of the women are actually offering hospitality of a kind. Mary's hospitality is rooted in relationship. She is interested in being with Jesus, in listening to him, in learning from him. Martha is interested in serving him. There is no, nothing wrong with both of those things, but Jesus is going to speak into this in a very particular way. Mary offers hospitality rooted in relationship. She is entirely focused on Jesus and what he has to say. She intuitively perhaps understands what Jesus wants of her in that moment. He wants her to sit at his feet. He wants to invite her into this possibility of being a disciple. He wants her to learn from him. And this part of the passage, this really gets to the tension between the two. Martha, she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said, but Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. Maybe depending on our personalities, we feel a sympathy with each of the sisters. Mary wants relationship. Martha offers hospitality that is rooted in service. Now, what's fascinating about this is all through Luke, as Luke writes, as he narrates, as he records what Jesus said, says over and over again, he values service. He thinks service is wonderful almost 100% of the time. This is a passage from chapter 4 where we're told that Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her, rebuked the fever and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. Same word, this idea of service, diaconia. This is where we get the word deacon. If you're a churchy person, you know that we talk about deacons. They're the people that are outside shoveling snow in the middle of winter. They're the people that are caring for the building. It's a role that the New Testament values to an incredible degree. Service in Luke is a wonderful thing. And in this moment, when Simon's mother-in-law gets up and begins to wait on them, the message of the narrator is good for her. That's a wonderful thing. Service and leadership in Luke are often tied together. When we talk about leaders in chapter 22, Luke will say, Jesus will say, servants are leaders and leaders are servants. I, your leader, your master, I have served you almost 100% of the time in Luke. Service is valued and wonderful. Except in this passage. Except in this passage. In this passage, Martha is focused on service. And Jesus will say, wait a second. You're distracted, Martha. The service is the thing that has, has caught your attention. This has become maybe the idol. This has become the thing that you're focused on. And that isn't where I want your attention. We might say that Martha serves at Jesus. Mary serves with him. Mary somehow intuitively understands what Jesus wants and how he wants to be served in that moment. And what he wants is not performance. What he wants is for her to sit and listen to what he has to say. 
This whole idea of just how we do hospitality, I think, is central to the passage. Luke is very interested in the how and not just the, the who of service. He doesn't just want to say that hospitality is important. He wants to say there is a particular way to do this that makes a person feel valued. It's not a task to be done. It's a relationship to be lived in. And it made me think about some of the language that I heard growing up. This is an English parable that I'm going to give you. An Englishman's home is his castle. An Englishman's home is his castle. So we're going to push this conversation from looking at Mary and how she does hospitality, looking at Martha and how she does hospitality, to asking some questions about us and how we might be called to do this, how we might learn from the passage. An Englishman's home is his castle. So historically, my family, apparently I'm told, has a castle. I think I've mentioned it before, and I'll probably mention it regularly to you. Back in the 11th century, we owned uh, Raby Castle. It was a significant thing, but it's gone now. So I brought in another castle for you to see, one that I built myself with my kids. And they got to show it off at their school, and I just felt like I didn't get my show-and-tell opportunity. And really, when we do these things, what are we doing but living vicariously through our kids? So I built this castle, um, and, and it's fascinating, and I think there's so much that went into it. I love how it reveals some of the differences between my kids, maybe some of the Mary and Martha-ness of my kids, because Elena helped glue all of these little windows in place, and she helped cut up the brick walls and wrap them around, and Gigi built a sea turtle. Um, that, was, that was her main contribution to to what the castle looked like, which again, just says something particular about them. But, but think about what you're doing when you're structuring a castle. Everything about a castle is, is about these things. It's about security. It's about control. You get to decide who comes in and who goes out. You get to decide what the rules are in your castle. When I built this upper part, this is a mountain, by the way, in case it wasn't clear. I'm just going to run you through the different things. These are trees. Um, and there's... There's this idea that it's built up and it's secure and it's distant and it can't be assailed. The idea of an Englishman's home is his castle is rooted in, I get to decide where the lines are. This is my safe space. This is where I am free to make all of the decisions. And yet, is that how we're called to use our homes? There's this other quote, a play on this that someone came up with. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is a challenge for you. A Christian's home is God's hospital. As a follower of Jesus, your home is God's hospital. Now, the word hospital could sound a little bit patronizing. If you would say, you're not following Jesus, you're like, what do you mean? I'm broken, I'm sick, I need to come to your hospital to be, to be fixed, to be mended. In actual fact, the word hospital, it comes from a Latin word called, a Latin word hospitium. It's this place where when you would go to a monastery, all of the monasteries that you might hear about, they had this rule that they had to offer hospitality to strangers. And they would have a building that was assigned for this. That building, the hospitium, it was always the nicest place in the monastery grounds. It always had the best food you could possibly provide. The monks might be eating bread and water, but those staying in the hospitium would be given the finest fare that was available. They would be cared for. They would be looked after to the absolute degree. This was a space where you could come and you could find welcome. You could be known. 
I would suggest that often we have operated our homes based on a castle principle about controlling who comes in and who comes out, and yet it seems like the pushes to use our homes in the way that a hospitium was, uh, was used in order to let people in. You could make an argument that the thing that drove Christianity or made Christianity spread like wildfire in the first, second, and third century was simply that Christians understood hospitality and almost nobody else did. To almost every other culture, hospitality was centered around people that were like you and people that you knew. And if you were a Christian, hospitality was centered around whoever needed it. This is a quote from Rosaria Butterfield in a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Radically ordinary hospitality is this, using your Christian home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers, neighbors, and neighbors family of God. It's this invitation in. We seek to have control. We seek to have control over how and who comes in. And yet the challenge is that we're not supposed to try and control it. I would suggest most of us, if we're honest, become very careful about the image that we curate. We're very careful about what we let people see. As a question to sort of work through this, I would say, how many people do you know that are allowed in your house with no preparation whatsoever? With no preparation whatsoever. We have some neighbors that we've become close friends with, and the other day we, we text them, uh, and we were just talking about we're off to England. They said they could take, give us a lift to the airport, and, and as being the people they are, these wonderful people, they just came over to discuss it. They just wandered across the street, and this was Saturday morning, and, and the first thing they were welcomed by was Jude. And I would say Jude was not wearing many clothes. In actual fact, it would be fairer to say that, that Jude wasn't wearing any clothes. Um, he was just there in all of his Jude-ness. And so that was their welcome as they walked through the door. And there's this almost decision moment, maybe an unspoken husband-wife conversation of, do we keep the door open or do we just lock it and just say, sorry, we're not open to have guests right now? And they wandered into us in all of our Saturday morning unprepared Nuss and all my sons Saturday morning naked nuss and it was a joy to have them there but we curate these images we say we have these lines that are drawn and most people aren't welcome in we treat our hospitality or we center our hospitality around the image of a castle not the image that says you are welcome here. Martha seems to have similar problems she is so focused on all of the details and this is one of these passages where, however we feel about it, whether we like it or not, Jesus is going to come down determinedly, decidedly on one side of the argument. He is going to say quite almost brutally, Martha, you are wrong, and Mary is right. I think about the number of times I try and settle arguments with my kids. I want to give them the sense most of the time that they're both right in different ways. I want to hold that tension. I want to speak good things over both. And, and Jesus in this moment is like, no. Martha, you've got this wrong. There is something you need to learn here. Mary has figured it out, and you haven't. Yes, there's the being with Jesus, but remember, Jesus here is really talking about how hospitality should be for all of his followers, for everybody. It's not just located in doing this for Jesus. It is for whoever needs it. Hospitality became this vibrant Christian tradition, and Jesus' understanding of hospitality, it seems like it prefers the person over the performance. It seems like it prefers the person over the performance. 
And we, by nature, can be performance people. We want everything to be just perfect. We want to curate the image. How many times have you sat in somebody's house and they've been busy making things good for you and you've had this tension of, I appreciate it, but I would love it if you would just sit and talk to me. I would love it if we could just have a conversation. I feel like we are missing some of this because you are so busy. For those of you that are parents, it's a tension that we manage as our kids run around causing chaos as we're trying to have conversation. We're trying to curate that good image, trying to keep our kids in line. There's this wonderful little anecdote about the difference between French parenting versus British or American parenting. And and at one point, an American woman talks about her experience in France. And she said, my kids were running around this playground acting like crazy people. And I would chase them down and I would run after them. And after a while, my French friend looked at me and said, you know, if you keep getting up and chasing your kids, how are we going to enjoy our conversation together? There was this different sort of focus on it. And we are so interested in curating what the world sees that we miss this invite into relationships. Martha has the same problem. She wants all of the details fixed. And Jesus says it's not necessary. Few things are needed. And then he almost, like to start with, he almost seems like he's going to give us this get out. He starts with, you're worried about many things. And there's only a few things you need to worry about. And at that moment, the passage feels like it's going to give the get out of saying, yeah, even Jesus is saying that there's a few things that need to be done. There's a level of service that has to be provided. Even Jesus wants some quality of performance. And then he's like, actually, no, just one. Just one. And Mary has picked it. The one thing was to pay attention to your guest who was sat in the room. That was the one thing that he was looking for. This thing, Jesus' understanding of hospitality, it prefers the person over the performance. And this tradition of Christian hospitality was what made the early church vibrant. This is Jesus' follower, Peter, writing to people all over the world, cheerfully share your home with those who need a meal or a place to stay. It's almost just this casual, cheerfully share it. Find, Find a space for people who need a meal. Find a place to welcome people in. This is just how central it became. This idea of hospitality centered around knowing the people that come through the door and allowing yourself to be known. I would suggest most of us, somewhere inside us internally, we have a deep longing to be known. Now, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, you may say there's different levels to which I can tolerate being around people. I need a break at times. And yet somewhere, introvert or extrovert, we love being known. That is why someone knowing our name the second or third time they meet us is such a high value. Actually saying, wow, you remembered me? When I was a youth pastor, I would have regularly parents come and say, do you know we picked this church because you knew our kids' names? They would sometimes say, we gave, them, we gave them a choice. We said, which church that we've tried do you prefer? And where did you feel known? And these parents would say things like, well, well, they said, well, yeah, Alex knows me. He remembers me when I come through the door. There is something about being known that has this incredibly high value. Occasionally, all around America, there are these newspapers that have survived when newspapers shouldn't. I'm not talking about USA Today or the New York Times. I'm talking about small local papers in tiny towns. This is one of them. This is the Carmel Pinecone. 
It's the local newspaper for Carmel-on-the-Sea in California. Apparently, when Clint Eastwood was the mayor of Carmel-on-the-Sea, he used to use this all the time as his, like his pulpit. Why? Because local people read it. And why did they read it? They read it because these local newspapers that survived, they used as many local names as possible. You could read through this paper, and not only might you see your name, but you would see the names of people you knew. The editor of another small newspaper, the Dern Daily Record, said this, I could publish the telephone directory in tomorrow's edition, and people would read it to check that their name was there. When they made the movies of the Lord of the Rings, they did the big extended version with a special box set. And one of the things that was distinct about it was at the end, there was 12 minutes of footage where they just cycled through every single name of the Lord of the Rings fan club. And you can go on the internet and find numerous accounts of people screenshotting their name and putting it on social media because they checked to see if they were known. There is something about being known that is central to who we are as human beings. We long to be known. And yet I would suggest our hospitality has trended towards serving at and not knowing the person. This story is about hospitality, but not just about hospitality. It's about how you show hospitality. It's about how you show hospitality. If I was to say that you could change South as a community by one simple action, most of you would say, I would love to do that. And I would say that due to COVID, due to lots of other things, one of the things that we, we struggle with, that we miss, is relational connection. There are so many people in our community that don't feel known. And you, by thinking about one person you could invite in, into your table, one couple, one single person, one family, you could help change the community by that one simple action, just by allowing someone to be known. This process, this way of thinking is something that some of our outreach teams, especially our food pantry people, have thought about with the idea of redemptive compassion. There's some different values, and I'm going to show you the first three. The first value is, number one, everyone has value. Number two, we are called to invest relationally in each other. Number three, everyone has capacity and potential. This is this way of doing outreach and mission. So often the Western church does that at people and not alongside people. And this process is, how can we do that through relationship? How can we actually give people that sense that they are known, that they are valued? Hospitality, in Jesus' mind, seems to be centered around knowing the person and not just serving at them. This story at its heart, it's about hospitality. It starts off with how Jesus is shown hospitality, but central to it is how he longs every one of his followers to be shown hospitality. He has sent 72 out of, the, of them out into the world, and he longs for them to be received. This is a challenge to each of us. How do we show hospitality to those around us? So I have a challenge for you. I'm going to invite the worship team to start to make their way up on stage. I have a challenge for you and a piece of liturgy I'm going to invite you into. The challenge is this. Pick one person or family to invite to your table to build relational connection itself. It might be someone that you say, we used to do church stuff all together. We used to connect all the time, and it's been a while. Man, COVID has really rocked us in that respect. Pick one person, one family. Pick someone that maybe won't get invited in by someone else. You could help change the culture of our community just by being willing 
to invite people in. For some of you, you've got that tension already of, I haven't done this since COVID started. It's okay, invite them onto your deck, invite them onto your porch, invite them to a park, but find a way to invite somebody into your community to build relationship. Prefer the person over the performance. Prefer the person over the performance. It doesn't have to be perfect. You don't have to get everything right. You do have to value the person because we long to be known. So I'm going to invite you to stand and we're going to pray a prayer together. We haven't prayed together yet during the service. We've prayed individually. In this moment, I'm going to invite you to pray as a community. And we're going to say this out loud. Hospitable God, you invite us to a banquet where the last may be first and the humble and the mighty trade places where all have a seat. Let us share your abundance with the family of God and fear no scarcity. Let us greet strangers as angels you have sent. Let us notice the person above the performance. Send your spirit now so that we may find a place at your table and welcome others with radical hospitality. We pray in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And as these guys prepare to play, allow that challenge to sink in. Allow God to speak to you. Maybe begin to ask him how, who and how you should invite someone in. Maybe write down a name in your notes page. Start to ask him what next steps you might be challenged to make. And before these guys sing, I'd love to invite us back to our opening understanding of this passage. Yes, this passage is about hospitality. And yet both Mary and Martha understand that Jesus is doing something very significant. They show hospitality to all these disciples, and yet Jesus becomes their focal point. I would love to take this passage and invite you into relationship with Jesus. Maybe you're not walking with him right now. You, you wouldn't say you were a follower of Jesus. you trying to figure out, is there even a God? What, what is this big existential question that lurks in my heart? And whether you're at home or whether you're here, Jesus invites you in, invites you to sit at his table, invites you in, in whatever ways you are broken to sit at his feet, to become his follower. Mary and Martha both have this inkling that this story is going somewhere towards death. And then there's this surprising news of resurrection, that Jesus is alive again. They'll watch as he walks through a meal to a crucifixion, to resurrection, and then back to another meal. You're invited to sit at this table. You are loved by the God of the universe. He has made a place for you. Jesus' death and resurrection were and are for you. And see so you in your own heart in this moment. Uh, can, can pray to him, maybe for the first time, and say, God, I would love forgiveness. I would love to be made whole. I would love to know that you're there. I would love to be empowered to follow you. It's a great prayer to start off a journey with Jesus. And we'd love to help you on that journey if you want to let us know that you prayed it. Maybe this song as we sing will reflect some of your thoughts. 
It's an invitation to run to the God of the universe with all of your brokenness. Not to fix yourself, but to know that he loves you and longs to be in your life. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. You can give online at southfellowship.org slash give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks for listening, South family. Have a great rest of your day.